Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 31st, 2016, and I thought I would end the year with a rant. But before I begin, let me thank all of the people, the good people, who have supported Christogenia.org throughout the year. You may be pleased to know that our website traffic is up nearly 28% over last year, and we will post on that perhaps in a week or two at the Christiania Forum, just to set the record of a few things clear, because we're constantly being rumored about and denigrated by our enemies, so I, I like to have clarity, I like to be transparent, one um, well, one clown the other day said on Facebook that he, Christogenia shouldn't be trusted because you're better off getting the truth from little guys rather than from big media. I, I mean, I guess he was serious. It, it came through a third party. I, I don't know. Um, Christogenia is like a one-man operation, except that I cannot discount my good friend Clifton Emmerheiser, who, who posts all all of his own material on one of our subdomains. So it, it's just me and, and the forum members that we're blessed with, and that that's it. It's by no means a media operation of any sort. That's crazy. And, and those people who think, well, how does he keep his servers going in, 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 in spite of everything that he has on them, well, well, that's because we've been blessed with the skill and and the know-how to do that on our own, and that's what we do. But the the, the our enemies are always going to find a way to try to denigrate us, and and we expect that they could all go to hell. They will, I'm sure. Tonight we're going to discuss that very thing. I I, I really struggled with what I should title this program. I'm going to title it Christian Identity and Social Media. A glimpse into the challenges we meet on Facebook, as an example. We argue in other venues sometimes, on Twitter and Google Plus and places like that. Facebook is the pits, though. I, I mean, Twitter, we, we, we catch flack from Jews and niggers, but we never catch flack that we see from actual white people who have an option to share what they like of ours and, and to disregard the rest. Facebook, everybody's a bully on Facebook. Everybody knows everything on Facebook. You can't tell anybody anything on Facebook. And, and they all talk to you like they would never talk to you in person because you would punch them in the head so damned hard you'd knock them into next week. And maybe my anger is getting away with me, but that's just the truth. The things people say to me on Facebook, they would never say to me in person. But I guarantee you this, everything I say on Facebook, I will say to your ass in person. Here we will begin with an allegory. Let's say that Joe Smith has the fastest hot rod in Alabama, but nobody can beat him in a drag race. So one of his competitors, we will call him Butt Hurts, 
spreads the rumor that the secret to Joe's success is the small nuclear engine he has under the hood. Nuclear engines are pretty expensive, so maybe it was financed by the Jews. So half the state believes that Joe Smith is cheating, using some secret hidden technology that does not belong in the game. Maybe they think he got it out of the Talmud or something. But of course, but Hertz never actually produces any evidence in order to prove his assertions. The simple-minded merely accept some excuse that seems to make sense on its surface, because they themselves cannot come up with a valid explanation for something. They just simply haven't done the studying. Then one day, one of the fools that believed but Hertz, in spite of his lack of evidence, encounters Joe Smith and asks him how he wins all of those races. So Joe kindly starts to explain to him the precise details of his formula and all of the hard work he put into devising his car. But because it does not match up with the lies of but hurts that this fool believed, the fool starts calling Joe a cheater, a liar, even a Jew. The fool won't even listen to anything which the does not agree with what his friend but hurts had told him. Joe is simply bewildered. He tried to explain the truth to the guy, and now he wants to just choke the fool. But if he does, he is the one who ends up looking like the bad guy. The truth is that if the fool in our allegory could take the time to examine the facts that Joe Smith wanted to share with him, then the lies of but hurts would be exposed, and the fool would have to admit that he was deceived. How hard it is for a fool to have to admit his own stupidity. But a humble man... A humble man can indeed admit that he was once wrong and strive to correct his errors. We can call the fool by many names. We will hear some of those names here this evening. But but hurts really stands for clowns and liars like Ted Wheeland or Joseph November. And if the fool, I'm sorry, and the fool could be any one of hundreds of people who profess to be identity Christians that we encounter on Facebook each month, who follow one of those clowns, ostensibly because they heard a little truth, and they like what they heard, and for various reasons they stop right there at that point, because it makes them comfortable. Now I can see half of the people who listen to this rolling their eyes and wondering why I would waste my time with Facebook. There's a forum at Christagenia. And it's frequented by many excellent Christian identity brethren. The discussions are often edifying, even when we do not always come to agreement on the details. And that work is important, especially where, on many issues, multiple opinions are heard. But there is no name-calling, mostly because people like Butt Hurts and the fools who follow accusations without evidence are generally not tolerated. That is because we have a solid foundation in Christ. We agree on the principal issues of God in Christ, of covenant and race, and the nature of the enemies of God. 
This is the true foundation for Christian communion and everything else that is not explicit in Scripture may be debated in a brotherly manner. However, on those most important issues where practically all of the forum members agree, posting in the Christogenia forum, I'm speaking to the choir and not gaining much new ground for our message, even though we often all learn from the experience. This too may change somewhat over the coming months when we open up the new forum to registration, where for many years it has only been open to membership by request or invitation only. Of course, there will still be zero tolerance for trolls. Truth is not a democracy. So we maintain a presence on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and other social media, to which I probably devote maybe four to eight hours a week, if I had to guess. To me, that is not a lot. I am certain that my wife, Melissa, will verify that it is probably only five to ten percent of the hours I spend here at my desk, since an 80-hour work week is not uncommon. Last year, we devoted much less time to it than we did this year, and the payoff has been moderate last year. 4.1% 4. 4 of Christagenia.org traffic came from social media, and this year it is 8%, according to Google. Now, if you believe Google's numbers concerning our visitor statistics, 8% is like maybe 20, 25 to 30,000 visitors. It's not much. But, on the other hand, it's significant. I mean, 30,000 visits is a lot. But on social media, I am not trying to make friends. Although I deeply appreciate all of the people we encounter who become friends. And there are many. There are a lot more enemies. I am only hoping to bring people to investigate and study our assertions concerning scripture and history so that they can realize for themselves that there is a greater truth than what they are being fed by the clowns, especially clowns like Ted Wieland and Joseph November. Many of the people we encounter on Facebook are seemingly good Christians who will actually stop to consider something when it does or does not agree with their own views, and even agree to study the points of difference. That's the proper attitude we should take when discussing things online. But many others are just like the fool of our story, and they want to argue rather than learn. As soon as they are cornered, they either begin to deny the facts and manufacture excuses, or they begin to make accusations. And we meet this all the time. Somebody I corner in a discussion won't admit that they're wrong, They'll just go out on the internet and, and get some of the slander that's been published about me by Jews and, and, and other clowns, and they'll post it, and it makes them feel good. Oh, they really got me, let me tell you. They really hurt my feelings. And I'm just sitting here laughing, thinking about how pitiful these assholes are. So when we tell them what we think of them, then they get all offended and begin to whine like bitches, slandering us wherever they can. So we have many people that spend much of their time on Facebook just slandering me and slandering Christagenia. 
and some of the people associated with it. If you observe the social network workings of a Ted Wheeland or Joseph November, they rarely tread where they are not comfortable. I always look like the bad guy because I'm eager to tread in enemy territory and to take the gloves off and go at it with anyone. So needless to say, my Facebook reputation is not good. But I don't care because I don't care who I offend. This is where the rubber meets the road. Identity Christians have to stop tolerating clowns. Identity Christians should be calling these clowns. In my estimation, you are not a Christian at all, unless you agree on a few basic principles. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God manifest as a man in the flesh. I don't care if you want to rephrase that and say that Jesus Christ is the Lord God come in the flesh. That's fine, since I know what you mean, and it's the substance of the words that matters most. But if anyone denies that, he's an antichrist. We have proven this from scripture and at great length on many occasions. But we also know that many people are going to reject it. And we are not saying this for their benefit. Either someone wants to examine the proofs or they don't. And the proofs can never be exhibited in a lousy Facebook thread. And if they examine the proofs and reject our words, then our Father is not in them. That is one test of Christianity which was taught by the apostles themselves. So I must ask all of the people who listen to my programs and have friends in social media or even in the real world who deny these things. Do you really think that you are pleasing God when you please those who deny that Yahshua Christ is God? Should you even have so-called friends who deny this basic Christian principle? And if they admit that Christ is separate from God, a separate being from God, then how many gods do we have? So in essence, they are denying Christ. The Trinity issue is a Canaanite bait and switch tactic designed so that Christians would be deceived into tolerating those who deny the deity of Christ. So if you consider Joseph November a pastor, I really want nothing to do with you. I hope you reconsider considering him a pastor. If you consider him a pastor and you continue to do so, you too are a lukewarm clown. Because Joseph November has done many podcasts where he clearly denies the deity of Christ in spite of the fact that he professed it when he was doing podcasts with me back when he was swearing to me that his real name was Eli James. But he's not the only one. We see many of the identity Christians which we encounter on Facebook who do not enforce this principle of Christian communion. And yes, this is a principle of Christian communion. Let's read 2 John 9-11. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and brings not this doctrine, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. 
Of course, Christ had many doctrines that we as Christians must abide in, but pertinent to our argument here. If Christ said, I and my Father are one, and if Christ said, He who has seen me has seen the Father, and if Yahweh said in Isaiah that I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior, so besides Yahweh, there is no Christ, and there is no God else besides me, so there aren't three gods in Christianity, a just God and a Savior, so the Savior is not somebody other than God. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, which is a reference to the children of Israel scattered to all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Then where Christ said on so many occasions, I am he. Those who deny these things are denying Christ. Christ did not correct the Apostle Thomas when he looked at him and said, My Lord and my God, in the Gospel of John. These people who deny these things are denying Christ. If you had these people as friends, or especially as so-called pastors, then you are taking a share in the responsibility for their evil deeds. If you really love Christ, I exhort you to consider this and make the appropriate corrections. Our arguments go far beyond the Trinity issue. If someone has not the inherent spiritual understanding required to understand that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh incarnate, how could you think that they can properly interpret anything else in Scripture? If they get anything right, it's simply a damned accident. These people... These same people make sophistic arguments to defend their position on the role of non-whites in Scripture. And too many of our social media friends fail to see the connection here. Even if they agree with us on the so-called non-Adamic or the non-Adamic so-called races. Now I, and Clifton Emmerheiser also, have often asserted that everything which Yahweh God had created, he called good. Yet, in the parable of the net, there are kinds, or races, because the word is genos, which Yahshua Christ calls bad. And therefore, that is one passage, there are many others, that is one passage which helps to establish our assertion that non-Adamic so-called people were not created by God. There is a certain fool on Facebook who has been trolling us for many years. And a lot of our supposed Facebook friends, a lot of identity Christians, still tolerate and consort with this clown. Who goes out of his way to defend the Chicago rabbi every chance he gets. Since he only uses anonymous avatars, Mark Adamson and, and Leo Judah, and fake pictures. He could be some shlomo behind a keyboard in Brooklyn. Since he only uses anonymous avatars and pseudonyms for his accounts, we cannot identify him precisely, but we have narrowed his possible identity down to one of two people. This clown is either Dan Kersey, which is more likely, or Jeremy Visser. Both of these fools have similar style of writing. Just the other day, this clown was informing one of our friends that we lied in our assertion that God never called the non-Adamic races good. And this is what he said. 
He said, Genesis 1, 24 and 25 is where Yahweh created the beast of the field, or beast of the earth. He put a slash there. Scripture states, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. I don't care how many times you examine that verse with a microphone, I'm sorry, with a microscope, you're not going to find any chinks and niggers. You're just not. That's their insistence, though. And he went on to say, notice the common theme and what's repeated over and over here, kind after kind, when he called it good, he was irrefutably referring to the fact he'd created them kind after kind, not that they were inherently good or bad in their behavior. Well, thank you, fool. You're arguing against me, and you've established what we said. This fool actually proves what we assert concerning the parable of the net. And while he objects to our assertions, he's agreeing that we are correct. When we assess the parable of the net, we explain that Christ does not call the bad fish bad because of their behavior, but rather he calls them bad because they are not of the same kind or race as the good fish. It is the same with the parable of the sheep and the goats. They are judged by their nation, sorted out by their appearance, and judged by their nation. As we said in our Hebrews presentation just last night, if the goats are nations which have their destiny in the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, as the parable says, then it should be obvious that they were not created by God, but they are the bastards which were created by the devil and his angels. This is how foolish our adversaries truly are. They argue with us in defense of niggers and squat monsters. But they do not really know what we teach, and that even goes for Joseph November. In spite of the fact that I gave him Bible lessons for two full years on the podcast we did together. I had a similar argument this past week with a hag named Diane Neal. I do not shrink from calling her a hag, because she should be called far worse. It was told to me by a third party that she follows Joe November in denying the divinity of Christ. And for that reason, she is worse than a hag. And if anyone does not understand why I am confident that I can speak to an obstinate woman in the same manner that I would speak to an obstinate man, please go listen to the podcast that I did last year on feminism. We have as many feminist men among identity Christians as we do feminist women. In part one of my feminism series, the women from Facebook I was describing were Betty Smith and Laurel Vance Jackson. There's a couple of other hags. They all think they could be teachers of men and then hide behind their skirts in order to avoid criticism. And that makes them just as subversive as a Gloria Steinem or a Hillary Clinton. Women are due all respect when they act and fulfill the roles of women. When they come out from behind their skirts to play the role of a man, they have to be expected to act like a man, and all men should treat them 
just in that manner. Because if you don't treat them in that manner, then evil women like Gloria Steinem and Hillary Clinton take advantage of our chivalry to subvert our society because they can't be criticized in public. Well, fuck that. They sure as hell should be criticized in public. If a woman's going to speak in public, she has to be treated for the content of her words and not because she's a woman. So after Diane... What, what's her name? Diane the Hag. Diane Neal. After she argues with me for an hour or two in defense of niggers and squat monsters, she went back and deleted all of her comments, like I don't have a copy of them. So now she could slander me without having to admit what an obstinate pig she really is. But I'll stop labeling her now. I'll stop using pejoratives now. The truth is that none of these people can discuss issues of scripture with me without resorting to posting links that repeat stories that I'm a murderer or I'm a Jew. They can all go straight to hell because every time they do such a thing, they show that they love non-whites and the world more than they love the word of Yahweh our God. They are nothing but hypocritical pretenders. Diane Neal has been telling people for months that I'm a Jew. Why? For one reason, because I don't believe that Yahweh created all the races. Imagine that. And she tells people I'm a Jew because I believe that all Israel is going to be saved. Imagine that. I saw the words right out of her own damn mouth, but she went and deleted them. In my opinion, hers is an egalitarian position. And such egalitarianism, that is what is promoted by Jews. Do these people think we're stupid? They think you're stupid if you have them on your friends list. In our latest Saxon Messenger issue, there's an editorial titled, Universalism by the Back Door. And that is exactly what such people are promoting. When I confronted her the other day, and I tried to be nice... She insisted that all of the other so-called races were created by God, and the proof of that is found in the same place as other clown pulled it from. Genesis 1.25 In the Hebrew words, che-eretz. The words che-eretz are a phrase which literally means living things of the earth. Che just meaning living thing, and eretz meaning land or earth, living things of the land or living things of the earth. The King James Version has that phrase in Genesis 125 to say, beast of the earth. And that's fine because it's talking about animals. Of course, this is what Joseph November teaches, and it's utterly absurd that this is where all the other races were created. They fall into this category of Che Eretz. That's what he says. And these people usually admit that the rendering of the Hebrew word behema in that passage in the King James is correct, where it's cattle, and that the creeping things are reptiles and the like. But then they want to squeeze in not only the rest of the animal kingdom, but all of the non-Adamic races of so-called people into the category of Che Eretz. At the same time, and even more treacherously, Diane Neal was arguing with me in disagreement that all Israel shall be saved. Something we again discussed and proved at length last night in our Hebrews presentation. So basically she denied that all Israel 
means all Israel. And she denies that all the seed of Israel means all the seed of Israel in Romans 11, in Isaiah 45. But at the same time, she claims that Chayaretz means all niggers and all chanks. What the hell? As well as most of the rest of the animal kingdom. How stupid is that? All Israel doesn't mean all Israel, but Chayaretz means all niggers, all chanks, and all the other animals. And she just pulls that out of thin air. Well, I'm sorry. She pulled it out of Rabbi November's butt. That's exactly where she got it. Diane Neal sounds more like the typical Jewish social justice warrior than she does a Christian. She would throw white Israelites into the lake of the fire while giving bastards credibility as creations of God. And when I oppose her treachery, she cries that I am mistreating a woman, just like Betty Friedan would have done. In order to prove their point, these same fools often argue that where it refers to beasts in scripture, it is often referring to hominids, or as they often say, people. And although we shudder to call them people, we often have little choice ourselves if we are going to be understood. Then they cite passages such as the law against women laying with beasts, or beasts who would be killed if they touched the mountain of God, in order to prove their position. But there are problems, serious problems, with that assertion. Let's read Leviticus 18.23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Okay. Now let's read Leviticus chapter 20, verse 16. And if a woman approaches unto any beast and lies down thereto, thou shalt kill the woman and the beast. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now most identity Christians would agree that these occurrences of the word beast in these passages would include animals as well as non-Adamic people. I would concur. However, I am probably remembering correctly if I state from memory that Joseph November argues that the references to beasts here only include people since animals cannot make a conscious decision and therefore cannot be guilty of sin. That I am sure has been his claim in the past, but it falls apart where we see that the children of Israel invading the land of Canaan were told to even kill the beasts, the, ca the I'm sorry, the cattle of the Canaanites. However, Joe November's entire claim falls apart once it is realized that the word for beast in both of these passages is not, as he insists in Genesis 1.25 that it means, is not Chayaretz, but Bahima. And if we accept that these passages are referring to non-Adamic people as well as animals, as I believe we should, then we cannot accept the assertion that Chayaretz is a term which includes the non-white races, as the word used to describe them in these two passages here is Bahima. If Chayaretz was a technical term that included non-white races, we would read Chayaretz in these passages, not Bahima, which is cattle. They conflict with themselves on so many occasions and in so many obvious ways. They've got to be stupid or deceitful. 
one or the other. There's no third choice. Joe November is either stupid or he's purposely lying. I'll pick the later. Behemoth technically refers to cattle and larger animals and not to people. That is where we must realize that quite often words for beast are used to describe non-white races. But they are not technical biological labels. Rather, they are pejoratives. A pejorative is a term which has another proper meaning, but is used is being used in a certain context to describe something else in a com- contemptuous or disapproving manner. So when Christ called the daughter of the Canaanite woman a dog, he did not mean that she was a literal dog. She didn't have a tail and bark and four legs. But he was using a term to describe her in a purposely demeaning way. She was a hominid, but she was a dog. There are no technical biological terms for the non-Adamic races in Scripture, because Yahweh didn't create them. So Adam didn't name them. So often it is evident that non-white people are being referred to when the term beast is used. But on other occasions they are called Enosh. As Adamic men are also sometimes called Enosh. Since Enosh is a term used to describe the mortal aspect of man. The non-white races are certainly never referred to as Adam. They're usually called Enosh, and they're sometimes referred to as beasts. Let's read a passage from Exodus chapter 19, where Yahweh is speaking to Moses. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mountain, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, it shall come up to the mount. Now, even Joseph November in the Jewish quarter of Christian identity loved to use this passage to prove the description of the other races as beasts with hands. We would agree. But that does not mean that the other races were created in Genesis 1.25. Rather, it only proves that the word for beast is used of non-Adamic people as a pejorative, just like the Canaanite dogs. But if November were right about Genesis 1.25, we would expect the Hebrew word for beast in this passage to be Che'eretz. And again, it is not. It is Behemoth. So where does that leave Joe November and all the fools who have followed him without checking things for themselves? And that leads me to discuss another issue. The clowns really think they get me on this one. They love to resort to Jonah chapter 3 where we find a passage. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yeah, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Then they claim that because this passage infers that beasts can repent and refrain from the violence in their hands, that proves the other races were created by Yahweh. What fools these people are. What a deception the Chicago rabbi has pulled over their eyes. 
The first thing to notice in this passage is that the Hebrew term for beast is not Che'aretz, but Bahima. And once again, the November balloon floating the idea that the other races were created as the beasts of the earth in Genesis is burst. But more importantly, these are not the words of Yahweh. Rather, these are the words of the king of Nineveh, which Jonah merely recorded. And the king of Nineveh was a pagan. So these words prove nothing from a scriptural standpoint, except maybe that pagans thought God created beasts. God created people as beasts. Maybe pagans think that, but Christians shouldn't think that. We can also demonstrate that in thousands of surviving Assyrian inscriptions, there is not one mention of people as beasts. So the November hypothesis concerning this entire verse is bullshit, because it is apparent that the king was indeed talking about animals. But in any event, these are the words of a pagan king. They're not the words of God. God didn't say that beasts can repent. God didn't say that beasts could consciously abstain from violence. God only told Jonah to go announce to the people of Nineveh to repent. If the king wanted to interpret that in this way, that's the words of the king. That's not the words of God. This clown November, this friggin' rabbi, teaches the words of a pagan king as the law of scripture. Go ahead, make my day. Accept that one. Then Cain, and am I to be my brother's keeper? Then that becomes doctrine too. And every other vile thing that the enemies of God say in scripture also become doctrine. The words of the king of Nineveh have no bearing on our Christian outlook. He was a pagan. He did not walk in the truth. And there is nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere, where it can be imagined that the other so-called races can repent, or even that they could have anything to repent from. All of our adversaries are liars. Anyone who takes up Jonah to defend niggers is a liar. You're just kidding yourself. You're just making up a story because you love niggers. That's what you're doing, you dumb bastards. I have never written an entire essay on this issue of the beast of the field. Or the fact that the words for beast are frequently used as pejoratives for people, even for the children of Israel. That is because Clifton Emmerheiser had already undertaken such a project. And I need, I find no need to duplicate Christian, I'm sorry, to duplicate Clifton's excellent efforts. But perhaps one day I will be so compelled. But in the meantime, Clifton's work is certainly sufficient. I would only be repeating much of it. And of course, Clifton's work is found at Christagenia. I have no need to repeat it. As for our friends, we can only admonish them to stop being fooled by the Chicago rabbi. Anyone who goes to such lengths to deceive you concerning the account of the creation of God and the role of non-white so-called peoples to the extent that he has must be rejected if we are to have a part in a healthy body of Christ. This man has spent a great deal of his Christian identity pastor career making excuses and squeezing niggers into the Bible when they just aren't there. Oh yeah, they're there. I'm sorry. They are there. 
In the book of Isaiah, it's explained that Yahweh gave up Ethiopia and Egypt and Sheba for the sake of the children of Israel. And if you really ponder that, historically, and understand what was going on in the 9th and 8th centuries BC. Yahweh wanted to send the children of Israel into captivity. They were going into captivity whether they liked it or not. So the Nubians invaded and overran Ethiopia and Egypt. And niggers ruled Egypt for 75 years. And Egypt was never the same again. And Ethiopia never recovered. And Sheba was done. They all turned brown. That's how Yahweh gave up Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sheba for the sake of the children of Israel, so that they didn't have allies to join to, or a south to flee to from from the Assyrians, because Yahweh wanted them to go north in captivity with the Assyrians, and that's where they went. So Egypt and Ethiopia and Sheba were given up. And who did Yahweh give them up to? His friends. Hell no. He gave them up to his enemies. That's who he gave them up to. And those black Nubians are his enemies. Because they come from the mouth of the serpent and not from God. On another earlier day this month, I thought I would provoke an argument in the thread, and I provoked it where someone had brought my attention to a conversation which Ted Wieland was involved in. Now, this turkey's talked smack about Clifton and I, and I've challenged him in the past, but he's never taken up my challenge because he's a pussy. And I say pussy, but you know something? That's short for the word pusillanimous. Pusillanimous. Look it up in your dictionary. Pusillanimous is to be basically... A soft ass, pusillanimous, has no reference to a female body part. If you think I used a potty word in reference to a female body part, you have a dirty mind. Because pussy is the first few letters of the term pusillanimous. And that's Ted Wheeland. He only talks big when he's in front of a crowd that loves him. And he won't stand up to debate because he's encountered me several times on Facebook, even in private, and he's just refused to talk to me, even when I was civil. He won't do it. Now, I provoked Ted in this thread, and of course it immediately generated, degenerated into an argument, when I was really only trying to provoke a conversation. I didn't say anything bad or mean. I think I called him a clown, maybe. Why? For sending Bibles to niggers. I took Willen to task for promoting the sending of Bibles to Negroes in Africa, something which he is proud of to this day. Both Clifton and I had written to Wieland concerning this back in 2005. Whelan never answered me then, and now several times these past few months he has still refused to answer me. So he ignored my challenges in his thread. But... One of his followers, a clown named Paul Masters, did choose to answer me. So Paul Masters said to me, after I asked Wheeland why he sent Bibles to Negroes and why he was proud of doing that, and that's about all I asked him. Paul Masters said to me, you believe in the dual seed line bill? As if this had anything to do with my original contention regarding Wheeland sending Bibles to niggers. 
So I answered that I believe in the Word of God. What I think about that is no secret. It is found in thousands of pages of my writing at Christogenia. I don't think Master's ever even heard of me, and I really don't care. But he only responded that, I'll take that as a yes. Then he said, well, that explains why we differ. I, for one, reject the teachings of the Talmud. Well, let me tell you what the Talmud teaches. Let me tell you what the Talmud teaches to white people. It teaches, love thy nigger. So if you're loving niggers, you're a liar when you claim to reject the Talmud. It's plain and simple. There is no doubt when you see Jews in front of the parades at the civil rights rallies, when you see Jews organizing Black Lives Matter, when you see Jews founded the NAACP, the Talmud teaches white people to love thy nigger. You think you're rejecting the Talmud because you're rejecting the truth about the Bible, but you're accepting and you're following the Talmud when you go sending Bibles to niggers, you dumb bastard. This guy's a clown just like the fool in my allegory. The fool who believed the lies of butt hurts and would never investigate things for himself before repeating them. I replied in part by saying, Paul Masters, I do not quote the Talmud, nor do I employ any peculiarly Jewish literature, all of which I despise to make my case. Whelan claims that our teachings come from the Talmud, and those claims are very, very stale. So you yourself show your ignorance of a position which you can pretend to refute. But I know that you cannot honestly refute it. And the issue of Negroes being sent Bibles is not an issue of sea line. Rather, it is an issue of covenant theology. So you do not even have an argument fitting of the subject at hand. Then I quoted Psalm 147 in regard to my original contention, where it says, He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Now what do we have here? We have David praising God that he never sent Bibles to niggers. David is praising God that he never shared his laws with niggers. And you're gloating that you send Bibles to niggers. Wow. That ain't what David would do. In the end, Masters only whined like a bitch about how I treated him, as if he did not deserve poor treatment for his initial lies about me. Then he used my calling him a clown as an excuse not to talk to me again, like a little prison sissy. He can get away with that on Facebook, but in the real world I would laugh at him as the niggers he would defend were raping him in an alleyway. Later, in a different part of the same thread... Another follower of Ted Wheeland named Misty Richards, along with her clown-ass husband, Sonny Richards, after a long discussion of ancient Israel and sin, began to assail me for my teaching that all Israel would be saved. And here, at this very moment, up pops Joseph November, posing under his alias Eli James. He had the nerve to pop out from under his yarmulke 
And he said, John 15.6 clearly states that if a man not abide in me, he is cast into the fire. No hope for whites who reject him. And to this, I responded, and this was all Eli said. To this, I responded, okay, Eli, you're a fool. I gave you Bible lessons on our podcast for two years and you didn't get it. But here I will give you one more. The fires Christ speaks of are the trials of this life. That is why he often refers to Gehenna, which is not the lake of fire. See 1 Peter chapter 1, for example. When a non-Adamite is thrown into the fire, nothing is left, because they do not have the Spirit from God. Jude calls it twice dead. But when an Adamic man is burned in a fire, he lives, because the Spirit of God granted in him is eternal. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And with that, and that was a rather civil response, since I was talking to the rabbi in Chicago directly, Eli never came back for further discussion. But Misty Richards continued to argue with me on and off for a long time, until she finally blocked me for all the pejorative descriptions I used regarding her. People think I do this to insult them. I don't do it to insult them. If I call you a clown... I don't do it to insult you. I do it because I know that you're an arrogant bastard and I want you to go away. Don't you get that? I do it because you're so arrogant you deny the plain word of Scripture. If somebody denies the plain word of Scripture, they are not worth talking to. All they deserve is pejoratives. And that is the example which I strive to make. Is that a Christian ideal? Yeah, I think so. Because I love the Word of God, and I'm going to defend it. I'm not going to let clowns squeeze niggers into the Bible. I'm not going to agree with clowns that send the law to niggers when David rejoiced that Yahweh never sent the law to niggers. That's what's going on in Psalm 147. I'm not ashamed of what I do one bit. Because I want to alienate all these self-righteous clowns who deny scripture. I want them to go away mad. I want them to go away cussing me. So I don't do it out of anger. I never do it out of anger. Rather, I do it out of passion for the truth. When we encounter people who deny the plain word of scripture, the scripture itself informs us that we must reject these people. Yahshua Christ said, I and my father are one. And I recall a series of programs Eli did soon after we had parted ways entitled, One Miss Refuted. So basically he should have entitled it, Christ Refuted. Eli might have put up the pretense that he was arguing against me, but really he was arguing against Christ. I have nothing to say that the scripture doesn't say. So when you argue with me, you're not arguing with me. I may not have a perfect view of every verse, and maybe you could help me. But if you're arguing with me, no, I'm only repeating the scripture. You're arguing with God. Because that's all I do. The passage that Eli cited in John chapter 15, that does not disprove Romans 11:26, where Paul said that all Israel shall be saved as it is written. The passage in John chapter 15 does not make Isaiah wrong, where Yahweh said, All the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That is the entirely wrong way to approach the Bible. When you approach a verse in the Bible that you think is wrong, 
You check the translation. You check and see if there's a gloss, like an error in the original grammar that indicates that there's a problem with the sentence that a scribe screwed up somewhere. You check various versions in the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts. I check them all. I check them all every time I come across the verse that I don't understand. The Greek of the Septuagint, see whether or not the apostles quoted it. Check every source that you could check for that verse. Read the um, the earliest commentaries to see what the earliest writers think about it. That's how you approach scripture. And if there still seems to be a conflict, you just better go study again. Because something is conflicting in your head. Not with the scripture. The text of Isaiah 45:25, the way that the King James has it, I've studied the Hebrew, and I've studied the Greek of the Septuagint, and the text is legitimate. There's no reason to call it into question. The text of Romans 11:26, where Paul said, All Israel shall be saved as it is written, there is no valid academic reason to call that into question. We have to accept those scriptures. And they're even correct the way they're translated in the King James Version, which I am often critical of. Anyone who encounters these verses and immediately objects to them is objecting to God. And we do not use these verses alone to establish our doctrine that all Israel shall be saved. To these we can add, and I discussed this at length last night, to these we can add Jeremiah 31, verse 34, Ezekiel 37, verse 23, Micah 7, 19, Isaiah chapter 28, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and many more than all of these. But we will briefly address John chapter 15 in the words of Christ and the true vine from verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. What does that remind you of? That reminds me of the parable of the wheat and the tares. That reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats. If I was going to cross-reference this verse in order to understand it, I would cross-reference it to three other passages, and maybe a fourth. The first is Genesis 3.22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. There were two allegorical trees, which were set in opposition to one another in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which wasn't planted in the garden, but it was in the midst of the garden. 
The man sinned by departing from the tree of life and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Christ, being Yahweh God incarnate, the true vine is the tree of life. He is the tree of life. And he being the root of that tree, it is evident that his Adamic creation with him are the branches. As he says in verse 5 of John chapter 15, Grasping the tree of life is the admonition that the man maintain his own race, which in Genesis chapter 3 is offered as the antidote to the sin of commingling with the tree of the evil, with, with the fruit of the evil tree. Of course, Misty Richards, being a follower of the rodeo clown, Ted Wheeland, would never know this. But Joe November should, if indeed he were ever a Christian. The other verse to cross-reference this passage to is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul wrote, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the society. And those who follow Ted Wheeland would never have the benefit of the translation in the Christogenia New Testament. But many years ago, Joseph November heard me explain all of my reasons for that translation, and he agreed. As it says in the 128th Psalm, If a man would fear Yahweh and walk in his ways, he shall see his children's children, and peace upon Israel. That is the promise of grasping the tree of life and keeping the commandments of Christ. That is what Paul refers to in Philippians, and that is what Christ refers to in John chapter 15. Every Israelite here, because every Israelite is here, because along the line, he or she had parents that, consciously or not, loved the law of God. When you love the law, you hope to see your children's children. When you hate the law, you are punished in the flesh. But if you are an Israelite, you are punished, so that the Spirit may live with the day, in the day of Christ. And here is one more passage, where if we depart from the ways of our God, it is evident, as Paul says, that we are handed over to the enemies for destruction of the flesh. Paul explains this of the fornicator, of Roman, I'm sorry, of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he instructs them to deliver such a one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the body of the fornicator is destroyed in the trials of this world resulting from his sin. But his spirit is nevertheless eternal, and being an Israelite, he too will have mercy. <coughs> I'm sorry. He too will have mercy in the judgment of God. But all bastards are tares. And if we depart from the vine, our works are burned in the fire. And there is nothing left because bastards do not have the spirit of God through which the Adamic race has eternal life and ultimately resurrection in the flesh. This is the context of Scripture, and this may also be cross-referenced to other passages, such as the parable of the wheat and the tares, the fourth that I mentioned earlier.
But Joseph November, while he double-talks, crisscrosses, and tiptoes through the scripture, like that faggot Jew from New York, evidently does not know what a tear is. And here we're going to prove that, because I have a lot of Facebook friends that weren't around six years ago when I split with this clown, six years short of about three weeks. We have a recording posted at Christagenia, which is the first program Eli James did announcing our split back in January of 2011. He was talking to Greg Howard on his so-called Voice of Christian Israel program, and he said the following. He said, Yahshua has no intention of exterminating all Canaanites. Some of these Canaanites will be allowed to live wherever they are created, wherever they were created, I'm sorry. That's what he said. He said it verbatim. I got a recording on my website. I'll link it with the notes to this program. Then a few minutes later, when Greg Howard asked him about bastards, this is what Joseph November said. Is the mongrel guilty of the sin? And does Yahweh punish those who do not commit the sin? Obviously, he does not. Joseph November still upholds these things to this day. If Canaanites cannot be sons then they are bastards, then they are tares planted by the enemy, as Christ explained in Matthew chapter 13. And they must be among every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted, which shall be rooted up. As Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, So how can November corrupt the scripture and imagine that some of these Canaanites would be allowed to live? If you go listen to the context, he was talking about the return of Christ and the second advent and the establishment of the kingdom. And he said some of these Canaanites would be allowed to live. Preferably him, I guess. And where the hell and by whom were they created? Since Yahweh never created any bastards. This is one example of the fast and loose Bible interpretation by which Joseph November often speaks out of both sides of his mouth. His absolute lack of scriptural integrity is quite astounding. The earth is Yahweh's in the fullness of it. And Zechariah 14.21 says, In that day there will be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord. And of course Zechariah wasn't talking about a brick and mortar temple. November still promotes his book, The Great Impersonation, every chance he gets, and even promoted it in a conversation with someone else in that same Facebook thread where I encountered him, or where he popped out from under his yarmulke to be a smartass to me, just two weeks ago. The following paragraph is from page 111 of his book, which he continues to sell and promote where he, in the preceding paragraph, quotes Matthew 15.27 and the words of Christ, which say, I am not come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, in the very next paragraph, after quoting that, he writes this. He said, Jesus was not preaching truth, justice, love, and mercy, mercy, for one group of people only, namely the tribal in-crowd. He was preaching these things for all people. These are the words of Joe November in a book that he pushes tonight. He's still pushing this book. And he hasn't changed it. I have a copy of it.
And he says, yet, there is a special role to be played by the Israelites, that of leadership by example. I don't know how the hell that ever got into the scripture. I haven't seen it. David was happy as hell that Yahweh didn't give niggers the law or any other nation. And he says that is what the crumbs represent in the story, speaking about the interaction of Christ with the Canaanite woman. Non-Israelites are to learn from us by our example of justice, obedience, and charity, and all of the blessings that proceed therefrom. No, I'm sorry. We'll discuss that when we get to 2 Peter chapter 2. And it can be truly said that the descendants of Israel have civilized the world and have done their best, despite all their faults, to spread this gospel around the world. It is not the Jews who have provided the world with the Magna Carta. As far as I know, the Magna Carta was written only for the English. It wasn't written for the world. The U.S. Constitution, well, as far as I know, the U.S. Constitution was written only for the posterity of the founders and not for the world. Freedom of religion. And as far as I know, Christians shouldn't want freedom of religion. They should only expect liberty in Christ. And then he says, cross-cultural charity and other acts of nobility on a mass scale. This clown, Joseph November, sounds just like a Judeo-Christian social justice warrior. He sounds just like a Jewish-inspired Masonic egalitarian. None of this is scriptural. Out of one side of his mouth, Joseph November cites the words of Christ which state that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And out of the other side of his mouth, November asserts that Jesus came for everyone and we should give niggers all our shit. Cross-cultural charity, my ass. And then he says Jesus came not only for the tribal in-crowd, that's a Jewish term if I ever heard one. Wow. Not only for the tribal in-crowd, if I'd have ever read his book, if he'd have ever sent me a copy of his book before I worked with him, I'd have made sure that I shoved it up his ass when I saw him. I would never accept anybody that would write this trash, and he promotes it to this day. If identity Christians do not kick this clown to the curb, they certainly will answer to Yahweh for their stupidity and their insolence. He, in any event, is headed for the lake of fire, so we say none of these things for his benefit. But now I need to get back to Misty Richards and her husband Sonny, and really to challenge Ted Wheeland or perhaps it was originally spelled Ted Weenieland, who was practically idolized by these turkeys. Misty and I and another friend had a long discussion concerning the iniquity of ancient Israel and the slaughter of the prophets. But when I failed to state the obvious thing, she protested with the following statement, and she said, Understand that I agree that race... Race mixing and the worshipping of false idols goes hand in hand, and I applaud her for saying that. What I cannot give agreement to is the idea that the Israelites were innocent in the murder of the prophets and even of Jesus Christ. I'm only on a thread to argue against that notion, and I wasn't involved in the beginning of the conversation. I only got involved in the end, but I took it for granted that she understood that. I recognized the sins 
of the Israelites. So I responded in part by outlining the circumstances by which Israel was divided after the death of Solomon and how the northern tribes turned to paganism, to which she agreed. And when she agreed, I responded in part by saying, well, the first sin is the acceptance of alien influences. And that is what scripture teaches in the passages I cited. Once the alien influences are accepted, the people go straight down the road to hell, just like white youth are being polluted in every American urban center today. And to her credit, Misty also agreed to that. Then someone else made a few comments, and Misty said, I've seen some argue that the Edomites are fully responsible for the death of Christ Jesus. And I cannot give agreement to that when Peter tells the Israelites that they were responsible. I haven't seen it yet proven that the Pharisees were Edomites, but I use the ad hominem argument in this case so that even if there were Edomites in their company, the Israelites are still blamed by Peter. Now this reveals a problem with scholarship in Christian identity. And I'm talking about the good guys. Not many of the older identity Christians make the grave error of blaming everything on the Pharisees. It's easy to do that, and they've all done it. But the real culprits were the Sadducees. We have frequently established the following in our New Testament commentaries, especially on the book of Acts, that the high priests from the time of Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, Herod Archelaus, I didn't really get a chance to proofread my notes. The high priests from the time of Herod Archelaus down to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem were exclusively of the party of the Sadducees. And for most of the time, they were from among the members of two families, which were related by marriage. Those families are the families of Annas and Caiaphas both of whom are mentioned in scripture, sometimes even together. It is the Sadducees who, while they were in the minority, had appointed the officers of the temple and had been the primary antagonists of Christ. On the other hand, Christ only addressed the Sadducees when they accosted him. He never reached out to them or called them by name. It's something very obvious in Scripture. Christ never addressed the sect of the Sadducees by name. He never addressed them in a positive manner. He never dined with them. He never had communion with them. He only spoke to them when they accosted him and tried to trip him up. Christ was found consorting with Pharisees, but that was because many Pharisees were indeed redeemable Israelites, in spite of their errors of doctrine and the evil influences among them. However, Christ never dealt in that manner with the Sadducees, who ostensibly were all Edomites, and we discussed that, I believe, in our commentary on Acts chapter 5. The simplification of these circumstances by most identity teachers of the past have certainly not helped our cause. They missed a few things. But aside from that, 
and something which I did not attempt to explain. I'm sorry, aside from that, aside from what we just said, which we did not attempt to explain to Misty Richards, I did respond to Misty Richards and said in part, Peter told the Israelites that they were responsible through wicked hands, alluding to the same concept. 2 Peter chapter 2 is supporting evidence. And when I said the same concept, I was referring to the concept of alien influences in Israel. Look at our government today. It's run by Jews. No shit, I swear it is. Jews run the entire government. Of course you know that. If you're listening to this, I hope you know that. And the government does many wicked things. And because the people tolerate the government, the people are responsible for those things that our government does. We collectively are responsible for the things that the wicked bastards in Washington do. There's no doubt, because we tolerate them. And we discussed that in brief last night in our Hebrews trans in, in our Hebrews commentary, where Paul had told the Hebrews that they had not yet fought so far as blood in order to defend the law and righteousness of God. And they hadn't. They tolerated the Sadducees in the temple and the rule of the Romans. They tolerated it. They didn't fight against it under blood. Just like Americans for the last hundred years have been ruled by a wicked government and we have not fought against it. We've tolerated it. And we get the same results no matter who we elect. And we continue to tolerate it. And that is part of our punishment because in the end, only Yahweh our God can deliver us. But that doesn't make it right. The sin is on our collective hands. And Misty's right about that. The sin is on the collective hands of the children of Israel who were in Judea as well as on the children of Esau because they tolerated the rule of the Edomites. They tolerated. They did rebel a couple of times, but... Those rebellions were pretty early on, and they didn't rebel again until Jerusalem was destroyed in 65 BC, 65 AD. I'm sorry, but Misty Richards, Misty Richards is a follower of Ted Wieland, and in Weenie Land, sin and genetics have absolutely nothing to do with one another. So he could send Bibles to niggers. Misty's first objection was concerning 2 Peter chapter 2. When were the Edomites ever bought by the Lord? But I never said that they were. So that began a long argument where she resisted me every step of the way. Why did she resist me every step of the way? Because if you study 2 Peter chapter 2, and if you correlate it with the epistle of Jude, the only answer you could come up with is 2 seed line. The only answer you could come up with is that there are wicked people among us who could never possibly be Christians, who are always going to be evil, and who were never supposed to accept or expected to accept the gospel of Christ. So she resisted me every step of the way. I exhorted her to read the chapter and tell me how many parties were involved in Peter's discourse. And she consistently refused to read it, just like the fool in our allegory wouldn't listen to Joe.
She made every argument and excuse not to comply with my simple request. I knew this would happen. People who do not understand the connection between genetics, the law, and sin, and what happened in those early chapters of Genesis, who don't really understand the origin of the evil people among us, will never understand 2 Peter chapter 2. And of course the children of Adam may sin, but the children of the devil cannot help but sin, and there is the difference. The people who listen to Wheeland, however, they deny that the devil even has genetic children. They deny that there is a seed of the serpent, an evil bastard seed amongst us, which is always going to be evil. They refuse to identify it, and their form of Christian identity is totally freaking useless. They may as well be Judeo-Christians. 2 Peter chapter 2 proves that there are, indeed, wicked people among us who can't possibly do good. And here we will walk through, and who are not Israelites. And here we will walk through that chapter. While Misty Richardson may never get it, perhaps we can help somebody who will. Misty ended up despising and blocking me when I ultimately told her that she was a clown, among other things. I was only telling the truth. When you start playing with scripture like it's a game, you're a clown. There's no way around that. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, trials in the flesh. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Paul of Tarsus, in Acts chapter 20, warned Christians that the children, warned the Christians of Asia, that there would be two groups creating heresies, where he said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We would ask Ted Weenieland to show us the difference between these two groups, to see if he agrees with 2 Peter and with Jude, or if he just makes up a story. We kind of bet that the clown, the rodeo clown, would just make up a story. What Peter describes here is evident in our society this very day. There are indeed many false prophets among the children of Israel who are of the stock of Israel. Here Peter is talking about Israelites. Every white Judeo-Christian minister or priest or pastor falls into this category, aside from the bastard identity crowd that we ourselves suffer. And Peter goes on to say, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Tell me that doesn't sound like your average Catholic priest. Whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation or their judgment, they're not damned, their judgment is the word, slumbers not. Peter continues to speak of the judgment of these men who sin in that manner. And he is speaking of Israelites, men who were denying the Lord who bought them. 
However, now Peter changes the subject of his discourse, and it is important to follow exactly whom he is speaking of. And he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, preacher of righteousness, that's what the text should say, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And here Peter is describing judgments against the ancient world. One thing which Whelan misses is the flood was brought to punish the children of Adam for mixing with fallen angels. And the Kenites and the Rephaim, as well as others who are not identified as descendants of Noah, had survived the flood, something which is attested in Genesis chapter 15. Now, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanites. They're not coming back. They don't have the Spirit of God. They were mixed with the Kenites and the Rephaim. They are the spirits of bastards which will all be destroyed. But the Adamic people who sinned before the flood, Peter tells us in his first epistle, Christ spoke the gospel to them, and they were delivered. The gates of hell were broken. They were delivered from the prison. Allegorical language which tells us that the entire Adamic race will indeed be reconciled with God. If those sinners before the flood could hear the word of the gospel. Peter continues, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. The filthy conversation of the wicked. Lot was living amongst the Canaanites in Sodom. And Peter says, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Just looking at those kikes, you're vexing your soul, seeing all the disgusting things that they were doing. We see the same thing today in Greenwich Village, or in Chicago. And Peter says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly, I'm sorry, the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust, to the day of judgment to be punished. These unjust are the remnant of evildoers that survive these judgments, as we shall see. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before Yahweh or before the Lord, in the King James Version. And here Peter is not speaking of those Israelites that he was speaking of back in the opening chapters. He is still speaking of the angels that sinned, that were cast down to hell. They are the source of these ungodly people. These ungodly people are not Israelites, and we will see that. The primary subject is still the angels that sinned. Peter is not talking about Israelites or even the families of Lot and Abraham here. 
The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanites, and they were mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim, which is evident as they were all dwelling together. And that is described in Genesis chapter 15. And Peter continues here in verse 12, and this proves he's not speaking about Israelites. He's still speaking of the wicked which came from these angels that sinned. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not. That's why Christ spoke to Israel in parables, so that his enemies could not understand and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They have no chance at being Christians. They have no chance at repenting, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. All of you people that want to send Bibles to niggers, the next time you go to a family gathering or to a restaurant or anywhere you go out in public, just look around you and you can see all these spots and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. These are not Israelites whom Peter is describing. These are beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Beasts made to be taken and destroyed. What Israelite is made to be taken and destroyed? You tell me. There's no Israelite, especially if all Israel is saved. This is why you can't believe that. Because you don't understand to Peter. No Israelite is made to be taken and destroyed. But people that don't understand the truth about Genesis can't understand Peter and Jude. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Which Israelite is a cursed child? The Canaanites were cursed children, but never the Israelites. The subject here is still the angels that sinned. The cursed children were cursed because they are those that Peter describes next, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. And Misty really screwed up here because she couldn't understand that the fallen angels, she thought the fallen angels waited around for Balaam in Numbers chapter 25. Well, that's just silly, because Peter's saying the way of Balaam, the way of Balaam, if I want to pronounce it Balaam instead of Balaam, the way of Balaam was around a long time before Balaam was himself. Peter is only using that phrase to describe the sin of fornication. The way of Balaam is the sin of fornication. Even Misty had agreed that idolatry and race mixing go hand in hand. But she could not understand how the angels that sinned did this because she got a big weenie in her eyes. She's got Ted Weenie Land. From Revelation 2.14, where Yahshua Christ addressed the assembly at Pergamos. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there 
them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Of course, the revelation being written some years after the destruction of Jerusalem, Pergamus was also where Satan's seat is, meaning that the Sadducee Jews who opposed Christ had taken to set themselves up in Pergamus. The angels that sinned, engaged in race-mixing, that's the way of Balaam. The race-mixing had gone on long before Adam. That is the story of Genesis chapter 3, where there is a whole tree of these people, and also in Genesis chapter 6, and in the spread of the Kenites in Rephaim through Canaan in Genesis chapter 15 and beyond. The sin behind the marriages of Esau, who married Canaanite women, the infiltration of the Israelites by the same people in the kingdom of the old in the period of the old kingdom, the ultimate infiltration of Judea by the same Edomites before the time of Christ, who at that time all became so called Jews, and the opposition to Christ during his ministry for which reason Peter said that Israel was responsible for his death through wicked hands. Ted Whelan can't teach history and he can't teach the Bible because it all adds up to this. Two seed line. The children of Adam are the tree of life. He is the vine and we are the branches. The only other tree in the garden that was used allegorically of people that Adam were, was not supposed to mix with is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fallen angels, they had the knowledge of good, but they rebelled and experienced evil. So the same thing is said with Adam after his transgression, that he came to know good and evil. After he consorted with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He came to know good and evil. He experienced good. And then, in rebellion, he experienced evil. Peter continues, describing these same entities. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. When we correlate to Peter with Jude, it is easy to see that the two apostles are describing the exact same phenomenon. They use the same or very similar language, and it is even clearer in Jude. The Israelites are not wells without water. Even when they sin, since being children of Adam, they all have the Spirit of God, they have a propitiation. A well without water is a broken cistern, a bastard which does not have that spirit. And therefore, as Jude calls them, they are twice dead. The Apostle Jude says, For there are certain men crept in unawares. Israelites wouldn't be able to creep in unawares. Jude's telling his readers that he's exhorting them that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Israelites can't creep in unawares. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Men who were ordained from, to condemnation from of old. Those are the evil beasts 
made to be taken and destroyed. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These men don't deny the Lord who bought them. They deny God and Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not, and Jude's warning them. But then he turns and says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. And a lot of people think, Oh, the angels are in a pit somewhere in hell. That's not what this is saying. And it's not what the phrase says in Peter. They're in chains of darkness. They're not in darkness in chains. The chains therein are made of darkness. Read the Greek. Read the Greek in Peter. Peter's not saying that they're in a pit somewhere. Wrapped up in chains. They're in chains of darkness. They're walking amongst us. Jude proves they're walking amongst us, just like Peter does. But first he says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers, these filthy dreamers are those angels that sinned. They are the subject here in Jude. Not Israelites. Despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Yahweh rebukes thee. And that's very similar to Peter's accusation. And what Peter explained of the angels of God and the angels that sinned and the interaction between them. But these, those same angels that sinned, those angels that left their first estate, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, they're people that are beasts, but Yahweh didn't create them. They came from the angels that sinned. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, a bastard, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now Korah was an Israelite, but he gainsayed Yahweh by trying to ignore the instructions that Yahweh had given to Aaron concerning the priesthood, concerning Eleazar, his heir, and Korah was jealous and wanted to establish his own priesthood, and to do so, he brought in what the Bible calls strange fire. And the error of Balaam is to teach the children of Israel to commit fornication, the same way that Cain came into the world. These are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. They are water carried about of the winds, whose tree, trees whose fruit withers, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots. No attempt, no attempt to convert these people. They're doomed from the beginning. Jude says that they were condemned from of old. And they're connected to the angels which left their first estate. 
they're not Israelites. And neither is Peter talking here about Israelites. But now he turns back again to mention Israelites. And he says in verse 19, while they promised them liberty, while they promised them liberty, we have two parties here. Now, Peter has been describing these angels that sinned. But now, he's describing the interactions between those men who crept in unawares those men who pervert the word of our God, creeping in unawares to subvert Christian society. While they promise, while the fallen angels, the angels that sinned, promise them, meaning the people of God, liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. The angels that sinned had promised Christians liberty, and when they bought it, they also became servants of corruption. The proof is all around us today. And he says, Peter says, of these angels that sinned, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The later end is worse with them than the, than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way to righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And this is not describing those who are clean escaped of them. Not at all. Rather, it is informing us that even when the angels that sinned, the tares who cannot possibly refrain from sin, can never conform to the gospel of Christ or to the law of Yahweh, even when they hear it. The historical fact is that they were left with the oracles of God, as Paul had explained in Romans. And they heard the gospel of Christ, as the records of the apostles reveal. But even with all of that, they still return to their fornicating ways. We should not be fooled by the likes of Joseph November. Jesus did not preach the gospel for all people. And only the two-seed line view of scripture explains why there are people among us who cannot possibly repent from sin and who are evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So we should not be fooled by Ted Wyland. No Israelite was made for that fate. No Israelite was ordained of old to suffer the fate of the angels that sinned. Paul explaining that the potter made the children of Esau for destruction, but the children of Jacob for mercy. All of these people represent Christian identity mediocrity which we almost named this podcast. They are all halfway there. Some of them cannot get to the whole truth because of their nature, and others will never find it because of their arrogance. Arguing with the scriptures, that's the ultimate arrogance, seeking to reconcile and, ex and, and understand the scriptures. That is true humility. Yahweh will destroy the proud, we should strive to leave them all behind. When the scripture says all Israel will be saved, if your first reaction to that 
is to argue against it, that's arrogance. If your first reaction to that is to say, how could that be? Because that's what the apostles said. How could anyone be saved if it was so difficult for a rich man to be saved? The apostles said, how could anybody be saved? And Yahshua said, with God, all things are possible. When you hear, all Israel shall be saved, just as it is written, which is what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, your first reaction should be, how could that be? It should never be to try to find verses to argue with Paul. That's ridiculous. That's arrogance. If for nobody else, this message is for our friends on Facebook, the few we have there. Something tells me that after tonight, we may have even fewer. But I am not going to shrink from confronting people simply because my message is unpopular. If I did, I would be abandoning my duty as a Christian and turning my back on everything I uphold to be true. All those who would disagree with me would do better to simply stay away. These notes will be posted tomorrow evening at the new Christagenia Forum. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.